Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. In this episode, we sat together with Steve Tauber, the CTO in residence at Made With Love. Steve just authored a book that's called Free Range Management. We asked him how free range management can actually help engineers build amazing products and how it can help engineering leaders build amazing, healthy, and high-performing teams. He has a few unpopular opinions that make a lot of sense. So we talked with him about how giving more autonomy can help accountability and many, many more super interesting insights. Check out this episode. You will love it. If you're an engineer or you're an engineering manager, there is loads of tactical advice on how to make engineers happy and help them build amazing products. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. And today we have Steve Tauber with us. Hey, Steve. Hello. Nice to have you finally. And hey, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Hey, hey, Steve. Hello, hello. It's super cool to have you because we've been talking for a few months and you actually were one of the first inspiring authors that we actually featured content in our app, Bunch the AI Leadership Coach, who isn't familiar. And Steve has really, really great tips on all things engineering management. And I think we found you online somehow. And it was a really, really special occasion to meet you in person as well, which blew my mind. And since then, we've had a series of conversations. So I'm really excited and hyped to actually share this wisdom that you carry with you, with everyone in the audience, and really excited about this chat. And my first question, jumping right in, actually is, you are CTO in residence with Made With Love. So first question, of course, is what actually is a CTO in residence? Yep. Great question. So a lot of people, I get so much spam email because people think I'm the CTO of Made With Love, but I'm not. I'm one of several CTOs that work at Made With Love. And we go to other companies and we are the CTOs at interim. So there's a couple common cases where this occurs. I like to think of myself as a firefighting CTO. I'm constantly going to a company and putting out fires. So this is like Gordon Ramsay's startup nightmares. That's the first scenario where something's gone awry. The CEO or maybe an investor has noticed that Maybe the team is slowing down or they're not getting good answers about why a specific feature isn't working properly. So they call us in and I usually come along with other developers, developers from Made With Love, and we'll take a look at the product. We'll take a look at the processes. We'll try to figure out what's going wrong and then help fix it. And so really our job is to mentor the existing team and to help them level up. And the other scenario is corporate entrepreneurship. So this scenario is where a big corporation knows that 
it's essential to build a team. That's the most important thing you need to do. And they know that it takes time to do that. So they hire us to come in and start building the MVP of a product. And we hire the replacement people. So we find the engineers, we find the other members of the team, the leadership team that need to come in and take that over from us. Usually it takes between six months and 18 months for us to work with a client and help them evolve to the point where they are ready to be on their own. And then there's a third piece to the puzzle, and that's that we do technical due diligence. So we help with seed, series A, and series B, some merger acquisitions as well. And I'm a lead auditor. I help design the audit system. So I've audited over 45 startups personally. And these are startups that are trying to raise money so that they can continue building their product. So I've seen a lot of things that are going right, but also things that are going wrong. So I actually have a follow-up question right away on this. I found this statistic pretty incredible because as entrepreneurs, as in founders, we get to work with maybe one, two, three companies over our careers, some more, of course. But having the insight under the hood of like 45 companies and working with even more, what were your kind of most surprising learnings and findings that you made so far? Yeah. So I think the most important thing that we find is the technical solution is actually not that important. It is important. You need to have something that works that customers can use. But investors are really looking for a team that knows how to work together and a team that can evolve over time. So when we're doing audits, we look actually not just at the code, which is what a lot of audit companies do. We look across five pillars, and those are team and leadership. So how the team is communicating. Is there psychological safety on the team? How do they get feedback? What's their hiring process look like? Then the processes, which are the engineering processes. So are there code reviews? How often are they shipping to production environment? What happens when there's an outage? If it's Christmas at 2 a.m., does someone get a phone call or is it just broken for the rest of the week? The third pillar is written communication. Part of one of the themes that I'm really focused on is being a knowledge-first company. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So we're all about what's written down. That's really important so you can scale quickly. The fourth pillar is engineering. So this is really about the technical solution, the code, the infrastructure, how it's designed. And then the fifth, which is the area, surprisingly, that most companies fail, it's problem and solution. So this is really about the product management processes. A lot of companies stumble into a solution and they happen to have customers, but then they get to a point where they are really driven by customer needs and they're not focused so much on challenging the assumptions that are being made. And so we find that most startups that we're auditing, and again, these are seed and series A, they don't invest enough into product management processes. So the prioritization is not data informed. They're not using data to make decisions. It's like a collection of people. We call it a hippo, highest paid person's opinion. This is a common term you'll hear maybe in the industry. And yeah, they're just making decisions about what to build. And it's not really backed by any research, qualitative, quantitative, or any validation. So those are some surprising things that we're finding. I would have a follow-up question, but I know that you're holding one too, Anthony. Can I still go? <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned like qualitative and quantitative because I can totally relate to like, it's just so hard to invest in additional PM processes at an early stage. It always feels like an overhead and like how much of the documentation do we really need and all of that. So I'm kind of curious to hear your 
take maybe from a perspective of like pre-product market fit, post-product market fit, like would your advice differ? Would you, how would you actually think about it when you advise like a company in a seed stage? For sure. So I think before market fit, you definitely have to be, I hate the term agile. I use the term agile theater because everyone's agile, right? But we're really thinking about pre-market fit as in understanding who your audience is and what their major pain point is. And the only way you can do that is by talking to your customers. You really have to talk to them and figure out what's the most important thing that they're dealing with. Are they willing to pay for it? Is this a tier one problem? And then once you understand that problem, you need to become a problem expert. Only then can you begin solution ideation and really exploring a variety of solutions. So there definitely is a trade-off on, as a technical team, coming in to build that solution. It's really about prototyping and trying different things. You don't have to have the absolute best code quality right out of the gate. You don't have to have incredibly thorough documentation out of the gate, but you do have to minimize the risk. And the risks there are things like the bus factor or the lottery factor. So if one of your team members wins the lottery and they're not going to ever come to work again, What's going to happen to your team? Are you going to continue to be able to succeed? And so these are some of the trade-offs that we think about. Usually when you're starting to think about taking on an investment, Series A investment, you probably have some product market fit, but you're also now at this inflection point where you want to transition to this quality-first mindset, and you need to scale your team. And the only way you can do that is by writing things down. Because if you have, for instance, two senior engineers and you need five more engineers, your seniors need to be writing code. They can't be sitting there training the new people on how the system works. So they need to spend the time to write that down so that the new people can onboard themselves. And that's why you need that written documentation. Got it. That's well uh, grounded advice, I think makes sense. Great. I also much prefer the lottery factor than the bus factor. I always found the bus factor a bit uh it's a bit grim. It's a bit grim to say the least. So lottery factor is much more exciting, but good advice nonetheless. And I, I think you're on a similar venue. So I'd love to stay here for a second before we skip over. Like, What is a knowledge first organization? I know you're touching on it right now, at least I assume, but like, how do you define it? And is there anything else you want to add to sort of why being knowledge first is, in, is important and what you've learned on the ground? In the field? Yeah. So we talk about made with love. A lot of people say, okay, you're a remote first company. But then I challenge that and said, actually, we're really about knowledge. Knowledge is at the core of the organization. So what does that mean? It means that we are really focused on transparent communication. We are writing things down consistently. So the people we hire, we actually are evaluating them not only on the job that they're doing, but we also take a look and see if they are good communicators in the written word, that's really quite important. And so then we're also thinking about whenever we're working on a process that we need to have a reflex to document. So we're writing things down and we're sharing that document rather than talking to someone or having a meeting. So this reflex to document is quite important. And then of course, it's making sure that we have our documentation in a system where all team members feel like they own it, that they're all contributing to the documentation because it's impossible for one person to be keeping everything up to date. So for instance, if I'm working on a project and I invite a colleague to come work on it with me, if they're reading through the information and they see an error, they'll immediately correct it. They don't have to ask me to do that. They know that they have the right and that they should, in fact, do that because this just helps everyone else. 
Awesome. Super cool. And obviously, I think we, we at Bunch try to be knowledge first, but we're certainly still creating, creating that system. So powerful to hear. One last question before we get to free range management. I was hoping you would touch on this or kind of hint at it. When you're looking at candidates early in the process for knowledge first potential, I don't know what the, the term is these days, but like when you're looking for those communication and particularly written skills, what are some of the signals? What are you looking for? Because I mean, this is one of the most the hottest topics over the last, obviously, couple months and couple years. But like, any secrets there? Yeah. So when we're hiring, we think about a responsible employee. We call it a free range employee, actually. So, and this is from Free Range Management, the book that I just finished writing with Andreas Creighton. So the question is, is really, what is a free range worker? And so we're really thinking about this as someone, first of all, they're a storyteller. They can be able to express their opinion, whether it's written, whether it's verbal. We need people that are persuasive because throughout the day, you're using these persuasive skills in order to accomplish your own tasks, but also collaborate with your colleagues and convince them that your ideas are correct. So that's a big factor, someone that can communicate very well. You also need to be accountable. So we need people that are willing to say that they're wrong and understand that when that occurs, it's not a bad thing. Everyone is human. Everyone makes mistakes. And you have to own that fact and use it as an opportunity to learn, level yourself up. We're also looking for people that can be persuaded. So, of course, you've heard the term that you have strong opinions held loosely this is very common inside businesses, but maybe it's almost an anti-pattern because it's very intimidating for someone to say, this is how it has to be, this is the way, but you can persuade me if you have good data or if you tell a good story. So I think we have to maybe not be so tied to ego in that case and just be very careful about how we're expressing our opinions. Is this something that I really truly believe in or is it something that's maybe not so important? And so, yeah, we're looking for people with some of these traits. When we're hiring, we think about culture add instead of culture fit. We want someone that's going to press at the boundaries of what we have as a culture inside made with love. And yeah, we're looking for the person that's the exceptional case that's going to come in, help us all be better. Awesome. Well, then that's the perfect segue. You already mentioned the book and your co-author. So why did you decide to write this book What's it all about? And I guess personal question, free range management, is this the same thing as free range chickens? Free range chickens, right? Okay. Is that what? Okay. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So free range management. So this book is really, the subtitle is how to manage workers by creating space. So this is what the book looks like. And you can see we have the little gate here because we let all the chickens, all the employees out into the, into the free range. Beautiful. Amazing. So yeah, that's where the metaphor came from. It's really about letting go. It's really about creating space. You hire knowledge workers and you manage those knowledge workers so that they can do their job. They are the experts. And the only way you can do that as a leader is to step back and trust them and know that they're going to do the right thing. So it's really about, uh, we're making this connection to the free range chickens. You have to let them out of the coop. You have to let them go free. They need to roam around and trust that they're going to come home at the end of the day. Why did I write the book? I realized that through these audits that we were doing, we had a lot of information about some of the best practices. We were applying those through the customers that engaged us later, decided that they needed some help updating their processes or that they had problems that they couldn't resolve. So in that firefighting CTO role that I took on, 
I had the capability to test these different processes and really figure out what works. And so this is a very pragmatic, practical book. It's only 112 pages long. It's really the very first steps that you need when you're leading a team. If you already have a team, it's really what are the things that I can do that I can level up? So it's a collection of best practices, a collection of Yeah, basically the things I found myself repeating over and over and over again. So now instead of saying, okay, here's why you should do one-on-ones, I can say, turn to page 25 or whatever the page number is and read that. And then we're going to talk about why you should do one-on-ones. Whenever you can say turn to page, whatever, you're an expert at that point. Like that's the moment, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. I just got tired of repeating myself. So over and over again, same conversations. Why should I do this? Why should I do this? Well, here's why. And we wrote down why you should do it. We wrote down how to get started with it. So every chapter ends with, okay, we've just introduced maybe five to 10 processes within the chapter. Here's the first steps. First, you need to do ABC, and then you'll be on your way. And it comes with a bibliography as well. So if you ever want to read more, you you have the references to do that. That's super, super amazing. And I, I think that it's not unsimilar to the motivation behind Bunch as well, because we kind of also felt like there is so much value in the frameworks and the templates that coaches share with their clients. And it's Sure, it's a very like, you know, human to human type of experience. But in the end, like if you actually could apply some of these ideas yourself as well, you definitely would come far already. So totally relatable. I'm wondering, and this may sound a bit funny, but like beyond the clients that basically kind of get the book and made with love in a package, like why do you think other people should read the book? Like what are the main takeaways that people get from it? Yeah. So I think the first one is if you've never managed a team before and all of a sudden now you are going to manage people that are knowledge workers, this is a great way to think about how to structure that and make your life way less stressful because it's really, for in my opinion, the best way to actually do that. And this is not just necessarily for people that are managing software developers, but there's many different types of knowledge workers And so I think there's a good opportunity here. Could you give a few examples, actually? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for instance, I think if you are managing, for instance, a group of lawyers, okay, this type of structure could still apply because it's really still about how do you assess these people? How do you give them feedback? Do you have psychological safety in your business? How are you structuring their work? How do you help them prioritize their tasks? What do you look for when you're hiring them? How do you transmit this knowledge between people within the organization? And all of these topics are, yeah, basically the various chapters in the book. Included also with that is creating time for deep focus and how do you actually focus, allow them to focus on their work? How do you encourage the collaboration? And how do you monitor the healthiness of the organization? So those are all the different pieces and they all come together. If you already have a team, Maybe this is a good way to check where the gaps are. Are you actually following the best practices? Maybe there are some ways that you can improve. And I think there's a lot of people that are software engineers and they're given the choice, hey, do you want to become more technical and move into an architecture role? Or you've been promoted and now you're the lead technician or you're now you have to do people management. A lot of companies still don't have a dedicated technical track that engineers can level up on. They force them into people management which is a totally different skill set. And if you've never done people management before, it can be very scary and there's a huge risk there and there's a lot of potential mistakes. So this type of book will also help you with actually doing that work and managing those people. 
Super cool. And like we were chatting quite a bit about this before the podcast. The world has changed drastically in the last couple of months, right? We've been in a very, very different environment when it comes to tech in particular, tech talent, engineers especially, I think have had a much, much different, I think, situation to look at when they thought about work and the opportunities they have. And albeit like it's not entirely like upside down, but things just look a bit different with unclear prognostics around recessions and whatnot. So when you look at your book, and of course that's been written before, I assume, right? (laughs) But like when you look at the book today from the current perspective, what if it's still applicable versus what if anything, would you have maybe um, framed differently? And how does that like apply in the current environment, actually, what you're sharing there? Sure. I don't think I would change anything, just to be clear, because for us, this is really, it's the base skeleton of what you can do to be not only efficient, but make sure that you're doing the right things. So I think there's a couple points, though, that are, are quite salient. One is for us that you have to slow down to go fast. And what I mean by that is a lot of teams that are small, they'll try to do five things at the same time. They'll have, oh my, we have so many priorities. We have to do this. And Bob, you're going to do this. And Camille, you're going to do this. And whoever, you know, you're just assigning out all this work. But this actually slows you down as an organization because as soon as someone has a problem, they don't have any support. They have no way to actually get help without interrupting somebody else. So what is better is to make sure that you have a very clear prioritization. You've broken down the work in a way that it's a consumable task, something that's only going to take like three hours of time. And you as an organization have agreed that this is the most important thing. So then you have a group of these tasks. You go and you do that. And maybe you spend a week trying to reach a specific goal as a group. Everyone is collaborating. Everyone is working towards the same goal. And then at that point, you can then pick your head up and say, is this still the most important thing? Or should we shift focus and work on the next one most important thing? You see a lot of startups, they have these roadmaps that are like six months, one year long. And that's good because you want to have predictability. But on the other hand, it's total BS because after three months, all your priorities are going to change because you've learned so much in those last three months. So We also talk about that. We talk about how do you roadmap when that's the case? How do you structure that? And I think that's really important. So understanding how you're structuring the work. Second piece, I'm going to mention one more thing. I know you have another question. I have a toggle in. (laughs) Second piece is how do you assess these people on your team, right? And I think the big mistake that most startups make is they are focused or maybe big corporations. I think startups are actually pretty good at this. Big corporations are thinking about, are they following the processes? Are we looking at the output that they're creating? And this creates this concept of measuring butts and seats. It's called management by site. And for us, this doesn't matter at all. We care about what are the outcomes. Did this person accomplish what they wanted to accomplish? Did they solve the problem that they're trying to solve? Did they reach the goal they're trying to reach? And so we're really thinking about two ways to do this. One is assessing individuals. So this is more, it's really subjective, unfortunately, but it's really about getting 360 degree feedback, talking to their peers, talking to their manager, doing a self-review, understanding if they're moving towards their goals personally, are they leveling themselves up? That's assessment. 
and metrics. Metrics at a team level, though, is the team succeeding because the individual is helping the team, which is helping the organization. So we don't like really having metrics at an individual level. And so when we're thinking about that, there's a couple different structures you can use, but it's really about assessments and metrics as a way to figure out what's going on. And then once you can do that as a manager, you can step back and you can let them go and focus on their stuff. Of course, be there for coaching, be there for helping, but you need to give them the space so that they can do what they need to do. My toggle follow-up was actually on the roadmap question. And as our podcast is known for kind of these like actionable bits and pieces and immediately applicable types of wisdom or insight, selfishly, (laughs) I'm really curious about how to actually roadmap when you have only six weeks kind of, yeah, predictability to a degree or like foresight. If you were to boil it down to like the one, two nuggets or mental models behind that idea that then people can read more in the book, what would it be? Yeah. So the first thing is have one thing that you're working on. And then for the next things, I like to have a very simple roadmap that is focus on problems, or if you're a product manager, jobs to be done framework, that's really useful. So rather than focus on specific solutions or specific features or specific functionality, you're going to focus on what the actual problem is. So I like to say, there's one thing you're working on now, there's one to three things that are coming up next, and five things that are going to happen later. So that's basically nine things total. That's it. Everything else, get rid of it. Doesn't matter. It's going to change. Good ideas will come back. Maybe you want to keep them in a notepad, but I just delete all that stuff anyways. So I'm a huge fan of deleting the backlog. I just want to hear about the top nine things, not even the top 10 things, top nine things. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is I map this to a structure called double diamond design. Double diamond design is used by designers, surprise, to think about the problem and the solution as separate steps. So it's shaped like a diamond. So the first thing is you do divergent thinking about the problem. Then you converge on a problem definition. And then you diverge on solution, that solution ideation. And then you converge on delivering that solution. That's why it's called double diamond design. It looks like a diamond. And I use that now, next, later roadmap. I map that to double diamond design. So when you're in the later phase, my five items there, they're in the problem research step. And when I have a problem definition, only then can they move to the next step. And then solution ideation can begin. And when it's now, we're really talking about delivering that solution. Thank you. That's super actionable. And I was kind of, when you were speaking, going through our Notion roadmap template, definitely would make some adjustments now. So thanks so much. Delete your backlog. Get rid of it. You don't need it. It's going to change. Yeah, we don't actually... We don't have that because we changed to ShapeUp, which is also like no backlogs anymore. We do have a overgrowing product input database, which at least doesn't hit the dev team anymore. And it's like this product manager nightmare. <laughs> Delete it. You don't need it. Good ideas will come back. Good ideas will come back. Delete it. You don't need it. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It is true, actually, right? The best ideas, or let's say the best problems end up being your focus anyway. And by being, it's almost constraining to have that, in a way, constraining to have that that thing just building up behind you, right? And in the worst case, it adds to the noise in your head, but the amount of voices that need to be heard in a specific decision and all of that. So interesting take. It's just a distraction. Yeah, yeah. I can understand that perspective and I can understand why. But extremely clarifying. Also, you know, we, there's a lot of tools out there, but to see you just pull together a couple of very 
common tools and say that's kind of all you need like it's i think reassuring for a lot of people out there to just say you don't need the fancy stuff per se to get the job done in a way right yeah for sure and i think that i would say probably if you have been managing an engineering team you've probably heard of 60 to 80 percent of the processes in the book because it's really just the basic stuff but it's how that they come together and complement each other i think that's really the key bit here so you've heard of having now, next, later, and you've heard of maybe double diamond design, but merging those together so that they overlap, they really add their strengths together. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I just wanted to rehash that and reemphasize that because I think that's wise, sage advice for anybody out there, particularly in the early stages of their career journey, trying to lap on tools and have the fancy stuff. Personally, I, a victim to that. Keep it simple. Keep it simple is the most sophisticated thing in the world, as they say, or whatever. So sure. cool. Well, I'd love to jump back to something you said before, Steve, which was very fascinating because I was recently talking to a, a lawyer. <laughs> so let's see if this translates to other knowledge work in reality, which I'm very sure it does. I was talking to a lawyer who was struggling to lead his new lawyer team, and it was all about accountability. It was all about how do I get these new young lawyers to do things on time, et cetera. So this question wasn't originally framed as sort of like a lawyer-specific question, but I would love to hear your take because accountability per se too is a very, very common, I'd say every single manager or leader, everyone interacts with this because you have a certain expectation of the way things should be done in whatever timeframes. And then this thing you need to be, they need to be accountable and you project this onto them. So this is a very common problem. Would love to hear your take on that problem space of accountability, but also in the context, and I know you're not a lawyer yourself, but also in the context of how it can translate to other knowledge work. And, and basically, what does free range management say about accountability specifically? What is What are the tips here? Yeah. So I think there's a couple pieces. So the first is we definitely talk about that you need to hire for accountability. You need to have that conversation about, okay, tell me a time where you made a mistake and how did you handle that? How did you respond to that? So that's definitely something that you need to have as part of the hiring process. And again, for me, it's a no assholes policy. I don't want to work with anyone that's an asshole. I won't hire anyone that's an asshole. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest person in the room. If you have that ego that comes with it, I'm not going to have you on the team because that's just a distraction to everyone else. So this is all leading into creating that vulnerability within the team and having psychological safety on the team. So measuring that, understanding it, creating empathy for the colleagues and really building that shared trust because that is actually what allows people to stand up and say, hey, I made a mistake. I need help fixing it. Come and help me resolve this problem. And you have to be okay with that. As a boss, if you're reacting in a negative way to someone that's voicing a concern or voicing an error that's occurred, they're going to stop doing that. They're going to start hiding those problems. And that's the last thing you want because all of a sudden your customers are going to be hit with something. They're going to be the ones that are going to suffer. So you need to create the environment where you can build the trust, where you can have that shared vulnerability. You have the psychological safety. You hire for that. That's part of it. You also, when you're assessing people, when you're talking about if people are doing a good job, this is something you're looking at. So we send out surveys whenever we have semester reviews and we're thinking about what is this person doing well? Is there something that they should stop doing? And any other advice that you have for them? What, what's really making them nice to work with? And so through these stories, you can sometimes also find cases where people are taking accountability and resolving problems. Another small tip you can do that's very practical is have a fail of the week. So in our Slack, we have a bot that every Friday at 2 p.m., it pings out in our channel and says, at here, 
what was your fail of the week? And we start a thread and people are talking about the mistakes and problems that they're making. Super amazing idea. So great. And yeah, it's something that's small, but it's it's just something that, yeah, it's it's exposed then. And people do dumb stuff constantly, but it's really about how you react to that. That's really the thing. And maybe one other bit is Apple has a structure called Direct Responsible Individual, DRI. And um, if you've worked for a Fortune 50 company, you might have heard of it called Cradle to Grave. This is common in telecom. And really what it is, is when a problem comes to you, there's one person in charge of getting it resolved. And even if you cannot fix it yourself, you go and you find someone that can help you resolve it. And it's your responsibility. And making sure that you have people that will take up this responsibility, that's important. So you get that customer, maybe that customer is coming, maybe you're a lawyer, as we're going to link it back now. So the customer comes in and they have a problem and maybe that particular, maybe it's not a lawyer, maybe it's someone that's just helping the lawyers out, right? They're going to go and do the research. So they see the problem, they maybe need to get other people involved to find an answer, but it's their responsibility to ultimately find that answer and give the information back. So that's an awesome tip too. I mean, I've heard of that technique or that specific um, uh, policy or tip before. That's a really good one. I think another guest had brought that up. So that's good. And I'm also going to send this podcast right over to the right over to the lawyer and see if we can't get Steve and free range management into the lawyer community. I'm not sure that's what you want, but that that might happen. I do want that. Yeah, for sure. As long as I don't get sued. <laughs> no, you won't. Well, hey, one last question. And I'll pass it back over to Daria. But, you know, this is kind of an obvious one to me. So I love the concept of free range management. I think it's hard not to like the idea. So to play devil's advocate for a second, or not devil's advocate, but, you know, if you're a more, let's say, a more controlling persona, your leadership style is more front, hands-on, you lead from directness, all of this I imagine someone would be like, hey, and they've probably heard in their career, hey, but sometimes people tell me I need to be hands-on. I have to be able to handle this if it goes wrong, particularly in crisis situations. What is free-range management's response to that? Because I, I know there are probably tons of people listening, just asking themselves that question or wondering how to go through that process of being the ideal free-range manager or leader, but still dealing with this just natural persona that they have. Sure. I think that's a challenge for some people that you have to really let go. But the question is, why did you hire this person if you don't trust them and if you don't trust them to do a good job? You are paying knowledge workers a lot of money to be an expert. You need to give them the space to be an expert. And again, people will make mistakes, but you can mitigate those mistakes. You can create a culture of accountability so that people are not hiding mistakes, but they're really spending energy on creating the best possible situation for your customers. And in the time of crisis, are you going to trust the people at the top of the hierarchy that have very little day-to-day interactivity with the systems? Or are you going to trust the person that is working on it for every single hour of every single day? I know I'm going to trust the person that's there every single day to go and resolve the problem. That doesn't mean that they don't need mentorship or that they don't need support from their colleagues, but you need to create those environments where collaboration is a reflex, where they have the support to continue to grow. If they don't understand something or if they don't know something, they need to have the confidence that they can reach out and get the support and get the help that they need without feeling judged. And so this blameless culture, that's a huge part of psychological safety. So that's really one of the key foundations of what you need to create. When you look back at all the like different teams and companies you worked with over the past years and you kind of 
remember those significant like transformation moments when you work with a team and you took them from, you helped them go from like kind of lack of structure and kind of like insecurity around how to actually manage process, how to manage the team to clarity, security, confidence, maybe also in taking the next steps. Do you have a few anecdotes that you would be willing to share? Sure. Um, I think one that comes to mind is I was working for one company where they were switching from a service company to a product company. And we actually audited them first before they called us back uh, after a couple of months. I think we audited them in November and then they called us, I think, in January or February. And they were, yeah, they had tried to adjust things, but it was clear that they needed some more help with that. But during the audit, I asked them, are you a software company? Yes or no? And I think that was surprising to them because they hadn't really thought about it before. Like, what type of company did they want to be? And so long story short, I was able to come there. I was able to help them take their existing software team, which was very, very small. It was super undersized. I think it was like before when we were doing the audit, I think there was like five engineers and the company overall was like 60 people. It was like almost entirely sales and marketing because they were a service company, right? Or the operations team, let's say. And then we switched it into this organization that in the end, it was actually a lot of engineers. It was over 50% of the company. And the way we did that is, and I didn't do it by myself, just to be clear, I had my colleagues help me. So definitely software engineers in the trenches with the other software engineers, helping mentor them in the day-to-day work. I had another colleague come in and help me with engineering management. And we were able to really level up their engineering processes create that culture where mistakes happen, but they're not critical mistakes. So we really limited the risk. And the way we did that is we helped the team deliver something of value every single day. Every single day, we were releasing code to the production environment. And previously before that, they would release to production once a month, maybe. So that is one way that we really made it that they were able to build up their own confidence by saying, look, this is the metric we're going for, and we'll help you do that. We'll help you put these processes in place. And yeah, create that culture of openness. That's, I think, really key. Super cool. It's great to hear also, not only kind of like the example, but also how you define success or like what you look back onto. And I think like that was a great impact that we were able to make. Looking back at your own career, which is super, super interesting, actually, not the typical kind of like engineer, then tech manager type of career. So would be cool to kind of hear how you storytell or kind of thread it like what were the story beats that you think are the most important and of course the like question we'll love to ask our guests to also model vulnerability and reflection upon your own maybe difficult moments it's like what were the difficult moments in your career where you learned the most you think sure yeah so you're absolutely right about my path it's totally winding (laughs) and that's quite normal i think for americans so Yeah, to have just so many different jobs. So my first job, actually, I was sweeping hair in a haircut salon. That was my first job. And I gave myself the responsibility to start doing inventory. That was like, I'm going to level up. I'm going to start doing this stuff. So, But um, yeah, I think the major thing was I was always in the garage, like hacking away till 4 a.m. when I was in high school. And I started doing system administrator, being a system administrator as part of my school curriculum in the United States. I was in a very great school district that uh, had this program where you could go and, and learn about computers. 
but I actually started working in tech support. I was on the phone answering customer calls, became a lead technician, started doing that for cell phones and for fiber optic networks and DSL networks. And then I realized I want to create stuff. I don't want to just repair stuff or fix stuff. So I went and I started being a programmer and I did that for a while. And then I realized I hate programming. It's way too introverted. I can't sit there with my headphones on for eight hours every day. And this is something that was really hard because I wanted to switch to project and product management. But in the US, if you're doing that, you actually have to have a huge salary loss in order to switch. So I moved to Europe and I took that as an opportunity to transition. That was a huge challenge, but I was able to do it. I'm still living in Europe today. And uh, so it's nine years later. And yeah, I've been able to, I was working as a technical product manager and then I came back to the engineering side. So now I'm a doing the CTO in residence. Super nice. And you're in Croatia, right? I'm in Croatia. I live in Zagreb. My wife is from Croatia. We met after I moved here. Super cool. Any takes on why people should check out Zagreb? I'm a big fan, a new fan, actually. We met in person when I was there last time. So huge fan, but curious to hear what your take is on the Zagreb ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people come to Zagreb because they're actually on the way to the coast and they land in Zagreb, then they have an overnight and then they go to the coast. But Zagreb is really great. I love living here. The people are super nice and we have a lot of small, interesting places to go and see, lots of museums. And yeah, it's just a very friendly place. So, and it's in Europe and it's not super expensive to live. And most major cities are just two hours away by plane. Very cool. I'm also an American living in Europe, Steve. We'll have to jam on that at some point. And um, uh, any plans to go back to the US at all or no? No, not really. <laughs> um, okay. No, I love Europe. I'll definitely stay here. And yeah, I mean, I go back to visit every now and then, but I'm slowly persuading my, I think my, my family to move to Europe actually. So we'll see though. Beautiful. Cool. Well, I'm going back in a couple of weeks for the holidays and I'll, I'll report back. But hey, we have a really important question that we like to start to wrap up with at least, which does bring us way back to the beginning of your journey, following up on what Daria asked. So we have a lot of listeners out there that are at the start of their journeys. This whole podcast is designed so that they can you know, use the wisdom of the people that have done it themselves and not make the mistakes maybe that they would have made without the advice, etc. But brings us to this question. If you could go back to your own beginning of your journey and you could give yourself one or two pieces of advice, top pieces of advice, what would they be? Sure. I think there's two. So the first one is build a team. I don't think you can do it by yourself. So you need to have people that can advise you and that can work with you on the same challenges that you're facing. And you need to find those people based on the values you share. I think that's really important. So build the team. And the second is get enough sleep. I see a lot of people that are younger, that are usually software engineers working on a specific problem and they're working on it, working on it, working on it. And it's like up till 4 a.m. And then they finally fix what they were doing and they're exhausted the next day. But also on the counter coin, you can go to sleep and your brain is still going to work on that problem and you're going to wake up and you're going to be able to fix it. And I've seen that a lot. So go to bed, get enough sleep, wake up and start the day fresh and you'll be able to fix your problems very easily. I love that advice, actually. It's not something that typically people answer this question with, but I think it's fantastic advice nonetheless. <laughs> so people, people should listen to it more. Then, so, I mean, we're kind of closing up on 2022 now as well. You know, we're closing up on the conversation. 2022 as a whole, how was it for you? 
What have you taken away and what are your plans for, for 2023? Sure. So yeah, 2022 was interesting because I became a father for the first time. So that was new for me. So I'll take my baby away to 2023 with me. I think maybe when it's related to, yeah, the leadership, something maybe a bit more topical. I think it's really interesting how um, offices are still something that people that are corporations really want to enforce. And I think that a lot of times that is related to trying to manufacture culture or trying to manage by sight. And so what I would say is think about really, um, is there a way that you can collaborate remotely and how can you get your uh, how can you get your employees to do that very easily? You might find the answer in a book if you if you read it. And um, when it comes to 2023, I think my my main goal is to yeah just keep an eye on my values and and try to connect to them more deeply. That's a beautiful intention. We'll see if it works. <laughs> Aside of <laughs> exactly, it's actually quite tricky. But aside of free range management, which obviously is a recommended read, and we'll link uh, the link for the pre-sale and the show notes, so all of you can check it out. Um, which kind of blogs, books, audiobooks, shows have you come across recently that really impressed and inspired you that you would share with us? Yeah, I'm going to answer this a little bit weirdly. I don't actually think you should read anything that's like an industry book that is, oh, it's so popular, I should definitely read it. Because guess what? You're going to hear about all that stuff from your colleagues and from the people that you're working with. If it's really, really good advice, you're going to see it on LinkedIn. Everyone's going to reference it, right? So um, what you should instead do is pick a different domain the one that I like to do is I love reading sci-fi and I'm constantly, as I'm reading sci-fi books, I'm figuring out these little pieces and how they fit into my work. So that's your superpower. Become an expert in a different domain, one that you're not working in and use the learnings from that domain in your day-to-day -day work. That's would be my advice there. That's amazing. Your favorite sci-fi book? Um, that's very, very tough because there's so many, uh, I really like Ian M. Banks. I think that his culture series is really good. So usually for first, um, for people first coming to the series, it's actually the second book he wrote, uh, in the culture series. It's called the player of games. It's, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's unique for sure. Uh, very interesting. Super nice. I haven't tried it actually. I will I'll definitely link it, but yeah, super curious Great. to check it out. Um, and then the one in my bio that I usually reference is Frankenstein. It's arguably the first sci-fi book. Sci-fi um, book. So <laughs> great. Yeah. So check out that. And then actually right now I'm reading by Margaret um, Kondesh, I think is her name. I'm forgetting right now, but it's mm -hmm. the, uh, the blazing world. It's uh, a book that was written actually much before um, Frankenstein. It's a bit like fantasy. So Super interesting. I am just in the, the second book of Dune, um, trying to work my way through. It actually, it grows on you after a while, but definitely very specific writing style. Also recommend checking it out. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been really, really cool to have you on the show. Um, lots of takeaways, uh, lots of actionable takeaways, and really excited to continue the conversation for everyone who wants to get in touch with uh, Steve. How can, our, how can our audience get in touch with you? What do you think is best? Yeah, for sure. LinkedIn is best. Um, just go ahead and add me. I'll add you back for sure. And you can also find the book on freerange.management. And um, maybe we could do a book giveaway 
through the podcast somehow. So yeah, um, it's a great idea. What do you think about that? I was thinking maybe whoever shares the podcast on LinkedIn and they can put free range management as a tag, then we'll see whoever gets the most interactions, most likes or comments, and then we'll send you a book. We'll raffle a book. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Actually, we've never we've never um, coupled that yet, but I think it's a really good idea. We can totally try it. And uh, yeah, so spontaneous raffle giveaway. If anyone shares the podcast once it comes out, um, you guys can put the tag in free range management, and then we'll find you. Tag free range management. Get people to comment and like, and we'll raffle one book, two books. One book. Think? Let's do. Yeah. One book. One book. For- okay, you will raffle one book. I'm definitely going to. <laughs> that's true anthony's pretty good with links it <laughs> no 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 you all we bunchies cannot participate do not worry you don't have you don't have competition from anthony go ahead and share the podcast it's i'm definitely gonna win it i'm definitely gonna win it so it's gonna be uh sorry everyone but uh... okay let's not hack our own system <laughs> or maybe we should if you listen this long you know you should get the reward right <laughs> that's true that's true my wife is gonna win it it's definitely true. We will be uh, we will announce that properly, of course. But hey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you everyone for listening. Check out Steve and check out Free Range Management. Highly recommend it. And have a really great rest of your 2022. Have fun. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio. Or simply follow Bunch at bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.